you have a Bible, would you open with me to Psalm 42? This will be our sermon text for this morning. Psalm 42, it's a psalm kind of Sunday, apparently. We had Sunday school and call to worship and now the sermon. Uh, Psalm 42 is a psalm of lament, which means it's a prayer um, from a time of difficulty or pain, uh, seeking God's help and uh, crying out to him. Psalm 1, if you remember it, it teaches that the one who trusts in God will be blessed. But Psalms of Lament teach us how to respond when life doesn't feel very blessed, even though we haven't stopped trusting God. So let's find sympathy, comfort, and assurance in Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. And pay careful attention because this is God's word. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and, and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizmar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing this word to us, for it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for revealing your son, our only way of salvation, and for giving us your law as a way to show gratitude to you for that salvation that you've given us. Would you illuminate your word by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can discern your gospel and your law? Would you take away any sinful or distracting thoughts, Lord? And would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2012, there was a fisherman off the coast of Mexico who was caught in a very violent storm that lasted for several days. At the end of this storm, he had lost his engine, all his equipment, any food or water he had, and he was stranded miles away from the coast of Mexico. He spent months struggling to survive catching fish and birds and trying to signal ships, doing anything he could just to survive. But no one came to his rescue. He wasn't able to signal anyone. But finally, after 438 days lost at sea, he swam to the shore on the other side of the Pacific Ocean in the Marshall Islands. I can't imagine being lost at sea for one day. That's probably one of my biggest fears, but 438 days would have been insane. And I don't know what the worst part was for this fisherman, but I think it would have been the thirst. Because even though you don't have food, you can try to catch some fish or birds. 
Even though you're lonely, you can still dream of friends and family. But you're thirsty, and it's not that you don't have water. You're actually surrounded by water that you can't drink. If you drink the salt water that you're floating in, it would kill you faster and quicken dehydration. But that moment when it begins to rain and you're able to collect and drink fresh water for the first time in days must be the most relieving and satisfying experiences of your whole life. Our text this morning speaks of a different kind of thirst, a thirst for God's presence. Though we might not be stranded at sea, we are surrounded by sources of water that would poison us. Instead of the fresh water of God's presence, we might turn to our sinful desires or worldly pleasures. But these things only make us thirstier, putting us in a more dire situation. In our passage, we will see that only Jesus can quench our thirst for God. And we'll consider this in two points. First, the thirst of our souls, and then the water of God's presence. So let's begin with the thirst of our souls in verse 1. Verse 1 immediately introduces the idea of longing for God. The psalmist says, As a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. I'm not sure many of us here are hunters or who have observed deer for very long, but the, the meaning of this analogy is intuitive. A deer running through the forest, maybe eluding a large predator, would become very thirsty. Because even though we have the privilege of going to the refrigerator or the sink to get water, a deer can only get water when it stumbles upon a stream. And in Israel, like in Nevada or California, there are very few permanent rivers. So finding one in the dry season was a rare occurrence. And so a deer would become very thirsty as it ran through the wilderness. That's one of the most obvious aspects to thirst that we're confronted to, in, that we're confronted with in this psalm. Thirst implies absence. If you're thirsty, it means you don't have water. But if the psalmist says his soul is thirsty for God, how can God be absent? We know from other places in scripture that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere in the universe. For example, in Psalm 139, David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. In other words, there is nowhere we can go to escape God's presence. He is everywhere. He fills the universe. So how can someone be thirsty for God, like our psalm says, if God is everywhere? Well, the psalmist clears this up in verse 2. He says, When shall I come and appear before God? And in verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. And so the psalmist is remembering when he would go to God's temple, singing praises and worshiping God with a crowd of his people. And so the psalmist is thirsty for God because he is unable to worship God in the temple. It's not because God isn't everywhere in the universe. It's because the psalmist is unable to go to the temple. This might not make sense to us as modern people. It might seem foolish to associate God so closely with a building. But the Israelites knew that God was omnipresent. They, they had this doctrine as well. They read Psalm 139. But in our psalm, it's talking about something more specific than God's general presence throughout the universe. It's talking about God's fellowship, his special presence. For a faithful Israelite, being separated from God's temple was no different than being separated from God himself. Because the temple in the Old Testament 
was the only way to access God's fellowship and the only place to worship him. It was where God revealed himself and his salvation through the temple itself and its sacrifices. And so away from a temple, an Israelite, say like Daniel who was in exile, an Israelite could pray to God. But even then they were praying towards the temple. They faced the direction of the temple when they were in exile because they knew that that was where God's presence was. But even though they could pray, they couldn't offer sacrifices. They couldn't worship God corporately with God's people. They couldn't experience God's fellowship through sacrifices. And so the psalmist laments over the distance between him and the temple or the tabernacle. It's not clear when this psalm was written. Um, it's almost certainly before the exile. But there were many times in Israel's history when a particular Israelite or the whole nation was separated from God's house. You can think of David when he was fleeing from Saul or when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. He was separated from the tabernacle and unable to worship God through sacrifices there. Or you can think of Israel's exile in Babylon. Although Psalm 42, again, wasn't written during that time, the, the Israelites who were in exile would have resonated with this psalm as part of their experience in exile. Because not only were they physically separated by Jerusalem by hundreds of miles, but the temple itself was actually destroyed and looted. For about 70 years, there was no temple at all. And so there was no place where God's people in the Old Testament could enter into God's special presence and worship him. They couldn't see the sacrifice, see the smoke rising up from the altar, reminding them of their forgiveness of sins. They couldn't join the crowd in singing praises to God, and not just because of the distance, but because the temple was destroyed for that time. And the people around Israel saw this situation that they were in when they were in exile, and they mocked them. Just like the psalmist in verse 3 he says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And verses 9 and 10 speak of the oppression and taunts of the enemy. Mockers looked at the exile as proof that Israel wasn't actually that special, that their God wasn't actually that powerful. Because even though the God of the Jews performed many miracles and saved them on many occasions, like in the Exodus from Egypt, at this time, during the exile, Israel was just like the other nations. And to these nations, it seemed like the God of Israel had abandoned his people. Either he wasn't powerful enough to save them, he wasn't willing, or he just wasn't there at all. But this wasn't the reason for Israel's exile. The reason was their sin. Israel disobeyed God's commandments and broke his covenant. And so God exiled them and took away the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the type of thirst that is described in our psalm. It is a thirst for God's presence in his temple, worshiping with God's people, and a lament because it is impossible. Sin and separation have removed the psalmist from God's temple. And we don't have a physical temple like Israel, so it might seem irrelevant and foreign to us to lament like the psalmist does. But our first parents did have a temple. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect paradise where they were perfectly provided for. And it was a place where 
it was a lot like a temple. Even though God was present in the whole world, he was present in a special way in the Garden of Eden. And just like the temple was the only place to access God's fellowship, Eden was the only place Adam and Eve could be in close fellowship with God. The scriptures even describe the inside of the temple and tabernacle as, as filled with garden imagery, with, with sculptures and pictures of trees, fruit, and flowers. And the tabernacle and temple was also adorned with images of cherubim, that, that angelic creature that God placed outside of the Garden of Eden to guard it. And so the inside of the temple and tabernacle was meant to remind Israel of the Garden of Eden, which means that the Garden of Eden was kind of a proto-temple. It was, it was reminiscent of what the temple was for Israel. Just like Israel was cast out of their temple because of their sin, Adam and Eve and all humans were exiled from Eden because of our sin. Our first parents, of course, ate the forbidden fruit. They sinned against God's law, and so God removed them from his temple, the garden. As we read in Genesis 3, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is where we remain today. We are born into exile, separated from God's presence in his holy temple. We are born in a desert, thirsty for streams of water, for God's fellowship. We are born with a longing for something more than this life, a thirst for fulfillment and happiness, a need for a greater love than we can find in our friends and family, a desire for a time and place that is free from sorrow and pain. The Church Father Augustine famously said in one of his prayers, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And he's identifying something that resonates with this psalm. We might say, Our souls are thirsty until they drink from the waters of God's presence. See, Augustine spent his whole life trying to find rest on his own, trying to find water to quench his thirst for God. When he was young, he spurned Christianity, which his mother had raised him in, and so he sought rest in academics. So he studied rhetoric, even becoming a professor, but he found no rest there. He tried to find fulfillment in pleasure, so he lived in sexual immorality, even living with a woman who was not his wife for many years, but he found no rest in sexual immorality. He even tried to find rest in other religions, so he zealously followed the rules of Manichaeism, which was a strict Gnostic cult. But he found no rest, no water to quench his thirst until he came to Christ. And we try the same thing that Augustine did, don't we? We all feel this thirst for God, but we try to quench it in the wrong ways. Some try to satisfy their thirst in each other, and so... They put this pressure in their relationships and friendships and expect them, expect other people to make them happy and fulfilled. And when that doesn't work, when that comes crashing down, they turn to materialism or drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, whatever it is, trying to find happiness and fulfillment. And when none of that works, they just keep looking for more. They keep trying more, the next thing, the next thing. 
trying to find something or someone that will bring them satisfaction in their life, that will satisfy their thirst, but nothing works. Going to sinful things to quench your thirst for God is like drinking salt water to quench your dehydration. These attempts will only poison you and kill you faster because you can't quench an eternal thirst with temporal pleasures. And just like Augustine found no rest apart from God, we cannot quench our thirst apart from God. But why do we try? It seems foolish to try to quench our thirst for something as great as God with something as small as temporal pleasures or possessions. As we read in Isaiah 55, 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why would we do this? Well, we do have a thirst for something greater in this life, like I've said, but our sin corrupts this thirst. We want something more, but we don't want the someone who comes with it. We want the blessings that God offers, but we don't want God himself. And so that's why we try to quench our thirst with pleasure. We think we can imitate the blessings of Eden. We think we can find happiness and fulfillment in our souls, but we reject the only one who can give this to us. Unlike the psalmist who actually thirsts for God himself, in our sinful nature, we thirst for the benefit, but not God himself. And we do have some of these benefits that God offers today. We can find some measure of happiness. God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He gives his common grace. But a day is coming when, we will, when, when God will remove these blessings and all people will truly long for God's presence, not just the benefits. God will come to the earth and judge all people. He will condemn the unrighteous to hell where they will be punished with an eternal thirst. See, Jesus gives a picture into the suffering of hell when he, when he talks about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And the picture that Jesus gives of the suffering in hell is a great thirst. The rich man who is suffering in hell sees Lazarus in heaven with Abraham. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Those who are condemned to hell will long for just a drop of water to quench their thirst, but they won't be given any. And yet it's not the absence of God in hell that will be so terrible, it's actually his presence. And so this brings us to our second point, the water of God's presence. Just as we read in Psalm 139, if I go down to the grave, you are there. So God's wrath will be the, the fire that causes this great thirst, as in the rich man and Lazarus. And this is also the case for our psalmist, who wrote in verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have crashed over me. These crashing waves are an image of God's wrath and judgment. And so the psalmist's thirst wasn't simply caused by God's absence. He longed for the soothing waters of God's presence because the raging waters of God's wrath were crashing over him. Likewise, he says in verse 9, To God, his rock, why have you forgotten me? And of course, God didn't literally forget him. God is not a man that he could forget. To be forgotten by God is a curse. It means that God has ignored 
your plight, your painful situation. And so these verses show us that the psalmist's dire situation was God's will. Because his anguish wasn't just caused by the absence of God's fellowship, but by the presence of his wrath, the waves crashing over him. And yet despite God's wrath and justice, despite the waves crashing over his head, the psalmist can still praise God, as we see in verses 5 and 11, that refrain that repeats itself. And in, verses, and in verse 6, he reminds himself of God from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizmar. These are places that are known for abundant water. And so they represent times of God's presence and blessing. And in verse 8, the psalmist also says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so he's reminding himself of God's blessing and presence, even in the midst of God's wrath. How can both of these things be true at once? How can the water of God's presence be like waves crashing over him, wrathful and angry in judgment, and at the same time, the water of God's presence can be sweet water that quenches his thirst? We find the answer to this question by looking more closely at the refrain of verses 5 and 11. Jesus referenced these words in Matthew 26, 38. He said to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. As he was preparing for the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus referenced Psalm 42. This word that Jesus used, he says sorrowful. This is actually the same Greek word that we find in the Greek translation of Psalm 42, verses 5 and 11. And so we could translate his words, my soul is very downcast. And of course, Jesus was downcast because he thirsted for God's presence just like the psalmist. And of course, who could be thirstier for God's presence than the very one who descended from heaven and took on the form of a servant? Jesus experienced thirst his whole life because he was separated from heaven, but even more in his crucifixion. It was at a culmination as he died on the cross. Of course, as we read in, in John 19, 28, as Jesus was dying, he said to fulfill all scripture, I thirst. Jesus was thirsty for a drink, but he was also thirsty for relief from his judgment and for God's fellowship. Jesus experienced the same suffering as the rich man who asked Abraham to relieve his thirst. Jesus longed for just one drop of water to relieve him from the torments of God's wrath. And as he was suffering, he was mocked just like the psalm, verse 3 and 10. Matthew 27 tells us that the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus, saying he trusts in God, like God deliver him now if he desires him. Jesus suffered in this way because God's waves and breakers were crashing over him. On the cross, Jesus suffered the eternal thirst for hell, which all humans deserve as punishment for sin. Just as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering under God's just wrath. 
but he did so for the sake of those who would believe in him. Unlike us, unlike humans who would suffer for our own sin, Jesus had no sin. And so he did not suffer for himself. He suffered for our sins. He took our sin, our pleasure-seeking selfishness, and put it to death on the cross. He subjected himself to great thirst in order that he might quench ours. But how does Jesus quench our thirst exactly? Remember that in Psalm 42, the thirst is a thirst for God's presence in the temple. In verse 4, the psalmist longs to go to the house of God. And remember also that the Garden of Eden was like a temple which mankind was exiled from because of the fall. And so we have to ask the question, how does Jesus quench our thirst for God's presence in the temple? Jesus quenches our thirst not just by suffering the ultimate thirst that we deserve for our sin, but even by becoming a temple to solve our exile from the temple. It might, it might be strange to call a person a temple, but this is what Jesus does in John chapter 2. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And a couple verses later, we get this explanation that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, that he would rise from the dead. And this makes sense because a temple is a place filled with God's presence where God and men meet together. A temple is a place where God is with us. And that's just what one of Jesus' names means. Emmanuel means God with us. It means Jesus fills the role of a temple. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure, God's presence. And so not only was Jesus himself God, he was the second person of the Trinity, but Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, which enabled him to work miracles. And this is why Jesus calls himself a temple. He solved the problem of our separation from the temple by becoming the temple, the meeting place between God and man. But after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he ascended into heaven. And so the body of Jesus' temple is in heaven, and we're separated from it again. So are we again in exile from the temple? How do we, is, is there any solution to the separation that we now have because Jesus is in heaven and not with us? And of course, the answer is no, that, that this is not where we're left. Jesus not only quenched our thirst for the temple by becoming one, he also quenches our thirst for the temple by making us temples, by putting his Holy Spirit within us. Listen to Jesus' words in John 7, 37. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. And again, we're given an explanation a couple of verses later. We're told that Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the Holy Spirit is this living water that Jesus pours to quench our thirst for God. And he didn't do it before he was crucified. That's what John tells us in chapter 7. Before Jesus died, the Spirit was not yet poured out, but after he was crucified and resurrected and he ascended into heaven, after he was glorified, he poured out his Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is the solution to our separation from God. It's the only water that can quench our thirst for peace and fellowship with our Creator. 
The Holy Spirit is the source of rest for our restless souls, not money or pleasure or sinful lust, but the very Spirit of God dwelling within us. We're told that if you come to Jesus in faith, if you trust in him as your only source of salvation, then he pours out the water of his spirit in your heart and quenches your thirst for God. And that makes perfect sense in light of Psalm 42, doesn't it? Because this psalm speaks of thirsting for God's fellowship in the temple, and that's exactly who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is that presence of God which filled the temple and tabernacle in the Old Testament. He's the presence of God that filled Jesus' body of the temple, and he's the presence that fills believers. And so that means if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you are a temple of the living God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He asks, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And so there is nowhere you can escape from God's presence not just because he is everywhere, generally, but because if you trust in Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You can't escape from God because he is within you. You are living stones being built into a living house of God whose foundation is Christ. And so the problem of being alienated and cast out of God's presence in the temple has been solved in Jesus. We are the temple. All you need to do is trust in Jesus to receive this solution. And yet those of us who have believed in Jesus, who have the Spirit dwelling within us, even us can feel this thirst for God's presence that we see in Psalm 42. It's true that the Holy Spirit in us quenches this thirst, but it's an internal and invisible reality, isn't it? We can't see the Holy Spirit. We don't have a visible temple to remind us of God's presence. We don't have the external blessings of God's presence that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. We experience sin and misery every day for our entire lives. And just like the psalmist was mocked by the people around him, we are mocked by the people around us who ask, where is your God? Where is your Christ? They never cease to remind us how long we've been waiting for Christ's return, and they want us to believe that that day will never come but it's the Holy Spirit within us that assures us that Jesus will return. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of the future, a foretaste of what is to come. Because when Jesus returns, he'll pour out the living water without measure, and our thirst for God will be quenched once and for all when Jesus comes back. This is what the prophet Ezekiel spoke of in Ezekiel chapter 47. The prophet sees a great vision of the city of Jerusalem, and the temple in it. But there's a strange thing about this temple in Jerusalem. There's a trickle of water coming out from the temple doors, going out through the streets of the city, out the gates, and flowing into a great rushing river. And this river that flows out from the temple goes into the Dead Sea, which is called the Dead Sea because it is so salty that nothing can live in it. But when the river flows into the Dead Sea, the salt water turns fresh and life returns. This vision foretold what Jesus accomplished. Jesus is the temple and the river is the Holy Spirit which he pours out to those who believe in him. 
Ezekiel 47.9 tells us that everything comes to life where this river flows. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us today. He flows into our hearts, and he gives us new birth. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the Holy Spirit brought us to life in Christ. And this is also what the Holy Spirit will do in the age to come. He will resurrect the dead and renew all things so that everything will come to life in the new heavens and the new earth. And we see a picture of this in the book of Revelation. John sees a vision of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city where we will dwell at the end of time with Jesus. But he doesn't see a temple in this city. There's no temple for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. In other words, Jesus will be our temple even in the new Jerusalem. And even in the New Jerusalem, Jesus will pour out his Holy Spirit. This is what we read in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, watering the, 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 the trees of life on the outside of the city. And so this is what Jesus will do in the new creation. He will pour out this water of life which again symbolizes the Holy Spirit, he will quench our thirst for God completely. We will no longer be estranged from God's presence as we are now. We will no longer long for the Lord. Pain and death and sin will be no more, and we will be fully satisfied and at rest in God's presence. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. But without Jesus, it's like we're lost at sea surrounded by salt water, dying of thirst. And yet we're told in Scripture that Jesus experienced intense thirst in our place and that he gives his Holy Spirit who turns salt water fresh. So if you still feel this thirst for God, then come to Christ in faith. Respond to the invitation of Revelation 22 where it says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Stop turning to salt water in the form of sinful desires and material possessions, friends and family. Stop turning to these things that cannot quench your thirst and instead turn to Christ. Put your faith in him who gives the water of life without price. You don't need to earn it or work for it. You only need to trust in Jesus. And if you have come to Christ and you still feel this thirst for God's presence on occasion, you still feel a longing for heaven, do not lose hope. As you endure the mocking and taunting of people who ask you, where is your Christ? Remember that Jesus is coming back and that when he does, he will bring us into the new Jerusalem where we will have full access to God's presence. There will be no need for a temple because we will dwell with God Almighty and the Lamb. And the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that this will happen. He dwells within us, reminding us that just as, Christ, just as Christ is present with us today through the Spirit, he will be present with us in the new creation when he returns. And the Holy Spirit sustains us, nourishes us, and quenches our thirst, carrying us through trials and temptation, reviving our souls, and carrying us safely through to the shores of the new creation. And what can we do in response except hope in God and praise him? For he is our salvation and our God. Amen. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you for this word that you've given us to encourage us, to remind us of the water that you have poured out to quench our thirsty souls. We thank you for the Holy Spirit which you've given your people to dwell within us, to make us a spiritual house of God. And we ask that you would pour out your spirit anew, that you would renew our hearts and minds, that you would turn us away from that salt water which is our sinful desires and turn us to the fresh water which is your presence. And as we consider giving our gifts to you, would you enable us with a spirit of generosity to give thanks abundantly with the giving of our gifts for gratitude for this great gift that you have given us? Would we provide for others as you have provided for us? We ask all of this in the name of our Lord. Amen.